You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find courses, resources, and a wonderfully supportive writing community. Regular listeners will know that I usually co-host this podcast every week with writer extraordinaire Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, whose latest book is The Wolf's Howl. It's the second instalment in her Maven and Reeve series. But this is one of our in-between episodes, and so this is a story session, just you, me, and our guest author of the week. In our story sessions, if you're new to us, you'll hear the first chapter of a book that we recommend, usually read by the author themselves, along with some insights that they discuss about their writing life and their processes. So we're bringing really the bookshop author event to you. You don't need a ticket. You don't need to drive anywhere. You don't even need to get out of your PJs. And this week, I've chosen Blood Trail by Tony Park. I think Tony is so talented and so great at what he does. If you haven't read any of Tony's books before, you're in for a treat. His best-selling novels are set in Africa. He's in love with Africa. He's Australian. And they're full of action, adventure and thrills. And this one is no exception. As you'll hear in his intro, Blood Trail is Tony's 19th novel, 19. So if you love this, then there are plenty more amazing Tony Park books that you can sink your teeth into. Now, so that you can get an idea of what the book is about, here's the blurb. Evil is at play in a South African game reserve. A poacher vanishes into thin air, defying logic and baffling ex-tracker Mia Greenaway. Meanwhile, Captain Sonny Van Rensburg, still reeling from a personal tragedy, is investigating the disappearance of two young girls whose locals fear have been abducted for use in sinister traditional medicine practices. But poachers are also employing witchcraft, paying healers for potions they believe will make them invisible and bulletproof. When a tourist goes missing, Mia and Sunny must work together to confront their own demons, which challenges everything they believe in, while following a bloody trail that seems to vanish at every turn. And before we hear Tony reading from his novel, he talks a little bit about his process and the inspiration behind the book, which is fascinating as always. So here is Tony Park reading from his latest novel, Blood Trail, which is out now with Pan McMillan. Hi, my name's Tony Park. I'm the author of Blood Trail, my 19th uh, novel set in Africa. Um, Valerie's asked me to record the answers to some questions before I narrate the first chapter for you. So here goes. What inspired me to write Blood Trail? That's a good question. Uh, I always have, uh, usually have an idea or two bubbling along in the back of my mind about what I'm going to write next. And those ideas can come from anywhere, from uh, conversations I've had around a campfire or things I might have read in a, a newspaper or, <coughs> excuse me, or funny things I might have seen in my travels around Africa. Um, uh, during COVID, um, during the lockdowns of um, 2020, uh, I was stuck in Australia. Normally, my wife and I spend uh, half of each year in Africa. We have a house in South Africa and we're part owners of a lodge called Nantwich Lodge in Zimbabwe. And so we spend six months of each year off and on uh, in Africa and the remainder in Australia. And we got stuck in Sydney due to lockdown. So I had to sort of reach back into my memory bank of, of ideas. 
And something I was very conscious of was that unlike the way I usually write, um, I was going to have to come up with this idea for a story and write it from the spare bedroom of our two-bedroom flat in Sydney. The way I usually write is um, very much by the seat of my pants. I make stuff up as I go along and I draw my inspiration and ideas for my work through our travels in Africa. So I was going to have to write this whole book in a spare bedroom. So I thought I needed to come up with an idea that was maybe less dependent on me physically traveling around Africa and maybe about more internalized kind of stuff. And I, I had an idea that had been bubbling away in my head to do with traditional beliefs. I had a conversation with a friend of mine about three or four years ago over a cup of coffee, and she was an academic working for the South African National Parks um, uh, Service. And she had been studying uh, plants originally. She was a botanist. Uh, but that those studies had brought her into research in the world of traditional medicine. Of course, plants are heavily used for cures in uh, in traditional African medicine and indeed in, 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 in all cultures. Um, an interesting thing she told me was that traditional healers were being dragged into the fight against poaching on both sides um, because there were rhino poachers who were going into the African bush in the Kruger National Park near where I live in South Africa and other places heavily armed, looking to kill rhinos for their horns, which are marketed in other parts of the world, particularly Southeast Asia, again, ostensibly for traditional medicine, um, but in reality more as just a, a highly sought-after, valuable commodity. And, and poachers are up against armed rangers and police and military people who are there trying to stop them, and gunfights often ensue in what is a war um, uh, to protect the rhino here in Africa. Um, and I, I learned that poachers would go to traditional healers to buy spells or talismans to protect them. They believed they could buy certain, certain medicine that would make them invisible, would make them bulletproof, uh, or would even help them assume the shape of, of something else, like an animal, like an impala, uh, and thereby confuse the rangers who are in the bush looking for them. Interestingly, as my friend pointed out to me, the National Parks Rangers, who come from the same cultures, the same tribes, also believe in this this type of magic, if you want to call it that. And, and of course, my initial reaction, I think probably like many westernised people, would be to think, well, that's just superstition, that's nonsense. But then, as was pointed out to me, these types of belief systems exist in every culture, particularly for people involved in uh, high-risk, high-reward ventures. And, and, and a good example was given to me and one that I could relate to having served in the Army Reserve for 34 years was people in war. As they say, there are no atheists in foxholes. In time of war, people's beliefs, religions, superstitions, call them what you mean, really do come to the fore. And we see, and you can probably think up, uh, recall examples that you may have heard from friends or relatives uh, who might have been involved in such endeavours, of little rituals that they go through. Uh, even sports people have certain rituals they follow, you know, whether it's a lucky pair of underpants or, or doing certain things before a, a big game or an event because they're involved in high-reward situations. Soldiers going into battle will carry the lucky rabbit's foot or have certain rituals they go through. And so this got me thinking that I could write a book based on beliefs. What if there was a safari game drive going on during lockdown. And what was happening during lockdown is that a number of the lodges pivoted and, and they were running virtual game drives where uh, a guide would go out in his or her vehicle 
with a camera on the back and they would do live webcasts of drives through the African bush looking for lions and leopards and elephants and other animals and broadcast them to a willing audience of hundreds of thousands of people. And I knew about that because I had been one of those people stuck at home in Australia getting my safari fix online. So I thought, what if you had one of these game drives doing a virtual safari, come across a rhino poacher in the bush and that rhino poacher vanishes into thin air. How could it happen? That's the premise of Blood Trail, and that's where I got the idea. Long answer, but that's where it came from. Can I describe my writing process? Yeah, I uh, trial and error initially. I When I first started writing, I, I quit my job with the support of my wife when I was in my 30s, and uh, with her support and her paying the mortgage, uh, I, I set out to write my first novel. I'd always wanted to write from the time I was a little, a little kid. And so I, I bought a couple of books on how to write. I never had any training, you know. Uh, I, I'd never done any courses or, or been to somewhere like the Australian Writers' Centre. Probably wish I had, but I, I read a couple of books and they both said the same thing, that you had to plot your story. You had to know the beginning, the middle and the end. You had to know who all the characters were, what was going to be in each chapter, and then you, once, you, once you've mapped it all out, you sit down and write it. So I, I did that, and I found it incredibly difficult to, to come up with a whole story before I'd even started writing it. I found it incredibly difficult to think up characters out of thin air. Um, and I think probably most tellingly of all, I didn't enjoy the process over six months of writing that very first manuscript that I ever wrote. It seemed overly mechanical. It was predictable, um, dare I say boring, because I knew what was going to happen right from the start. And I thought, why, why do you have to write a book this way? Now, to cut a long story short, that book went nowhere. Um, I, I didn't like it, so it wasn't surprising that I, I, I didn't find anyone else who liked it. A few years later, my wife and I had already started travelling to Africa. We went on what was supposed to be once-in-a-lifetime safari holiday, and in short, we got hooked by this incredible continent, where I happen to be right now. I've just escaped from Australia and got an exemption from the travel ban, and I'm back at my house in South Africa. Um, and and we had uh, taken three trips to Africa um, using our annual leave each year. I'd gone back to work after failing to, to get that first novel published. Uh, and on our third extended trip around Africa, I had another go at writing and I thought, why can't I just make it up as I go along? Now, I now know there's a term for that called being a pantser, writing by the seat of your pants. I don't particularly like the term, but it's what I am. And, and, I, and I, we were on an extended tour around Africa, and I thought I could write a book set on a tour around Africa, make it a thriller with a little bit of action, adventure, and romance about a bunch of young people on an overland tour truck. And I did. Each morning as we woke up and struck camp, pulled down our tent, moved to another amazing location in another African game park or national park and started having these amazing wildlife encounters, I would write another chapter of my book. And if I heard on the radio a story about uh, uh, elephant poachers or, or some crime that had taken place, I worked that into the story. And I found that by making it up as I go along, that's what really worked for me. So I still write that way. Um, the difference in in Blood Trail, I think I'll, I'll come to the, that in the next question, which is what was the most challenging aspect of writing this book, Blood Trail? So as I mentioned, I, I was in the spare room of a two-bedroom flat in Sydney trying to write about the African bush. And normally 
uh, I, I write on location so that wherever I happen to be in Africa, I, as I say, I draw in my inspiration from the landscape around me and I work that in, into the story. So I had to conjure it all up from far away. Now, I, I did that on the physical level by setting the book somewhere that I know very well. So the, the book is set in the, mostly in the Sabi Sand Game Reserve on the edge of the Kruger National Park in South Africa and in a fictitious but typical adjoining um, community on the edge of the, of the Game Reserve. Now that is uh, from where I'm sitting recording this interview for the podcast uh, about 500 metres from where I am now. All of that is just across the road from where I live. So I was able to do that, but the challenging part was now... I was delving into new grounds. I've written about wildlife before. I've written about poaching before. I've written about crime and romance and things. And and these are all things I've come to know over the years. But Blood Trail was going to be what about what was going on inside people's heads. It was going to be deeply personal. It was going to be about the innermost thoughts and fears and hopes of my characters and their beliefs. Now to do that, I spoke to my academic friend again and she put me on to another academic who'd studied this field of traditional beliefs and traditional medicine extensively. They were very helpful, but then I had to start talking to people who actually believed in these things. So I reached out via Facebook Messenger and spoke to a a guy that I know here in South Africa uh, who actually works as a security guard in the reserve where I live, where I have a house. My wife and I have a house in a game reserve. And and out of the blue, apropos of nothing, I said, do you mind if I ask you about your beliefs? And he told me, and he was very giving and very generous in sharing the stories of his beliefs. He was, he is a practicing Christian, yet on the same hand, he, he also has very strongly held traditional beliefs, and he's visited his traditional healers for um, for a variety of uses, and he talked to me about these things that I wanted to cover in the book, how people's beliefs could be so strong that they might think they can buy um, some kind of magic or potion to protect them. I was very conscious of what had been told to me uh, by the researchers, because the other challenging part about this book was to write it sensitively, to not ridicule anyone's beliefs. I think the best way to do that is to throw in some examples of how beliefs are common to other cultures. When I was a kid in particular, um, children were often given St. Christopher medals um, where their parents or, or a grandparent or a friend had, had paid money quite often quite a bit to buy what could be a silver medallion that was meant to protect them. And you could say that's superstition or religion or whatever you want to call it, but it seemed to me exactly the same thing. So I was trying to delve into this in a sympathetic way. Uh, I was very fortunate that uh, um, I was also able to uh, come across a practicing traditional healer here in South Africa who read the manuscript and, and made some very valuable um, corrections and, and gave me some very valuable feedback on that. The most rewarding, what was the most rewarding aspect of writing this book, Blood Trail? I think the most rewarding thing for me ties back to the most challenging, the fact that what I had to do was kind of lift my level of knowledge of my local area where I am now in South Africa and my local communities from the kind of superficial uh, to, to, a, to a, deeper, a deeper level. I learned so much about African traditional culture and beliefs in writing this book. That was the most rewarding thing. And I learned a valuable lesson that the more we get to know one another as human beings and individuals, the more we realise we have more in common than we think and fewer differences than we think. 
What are my top three tips to aspiring writers? Number one is just do it. Now, I know that's very glib and easy to say, but you can find an awful lot of um, excuses not to write. And, and they can be things that seem outwardly productive, such as, um, uh, such as research, you know. Um, I'll come to that in a second. Um, you, you can get involved in writers' groups, and you should if, if you want to, and that's great, and spend time critiquing your work and each other's work. And that can be very valuable, but it's time not spent in writing. So I think make time and just write. Uh, that leads into my second tip, which is um, get into a routine. Get into a routine. It's easy, easier said than done, but I believe it's very important. I write a book a year, so I have to, and then I write nonfiction biographies as well too. So sometimes I do two books a year. This year I'm doing three. Um, I have to get into a routine in order to meet my deadlines, but I also find it's good practice. So set yourself a daily word count. I have mine. Um, it, it's actually a page count. It's four pages, and that equates uh, to about fourteen to fifteen hundred words. But I do it as a page count. But set a daily quota. Always hit it. Okay, even if it takes you a very long time, then stick at it. It doesn't matter if your word count is only a couple of hundred words a day, but get there. Don't fall short of it. I think even more importantly than that, and this is more uh, more of a temptation, is don't go over your quota. Stop when you hit it. Reward yourself. Take a break. Exercise. Have a drink. You know, relax. Give yourself a pat on the back, because when you're on a roll, um, you can sometimes be like a runaway train. You know, you can work until you're exhausted or you crash at the end of it, and you might think that's a good thing to do. But it's better, I find, to have something left in the tank for the next day. So when I hit my quota, I stop. Now what I also do is I never finish at the end of a chapter. If my quota happens to coincide with the end of a chapter, I start the next chapter and I write maybe the first line or the first few words of that chapter because you never want to be confronted by a blank page when you wake up or start work the next day. I try as hard as possible to stop... Um, mid-paragraph, mid-sentence, because the other thing that can be difficult is trying to pick up or remember where you were the previous day. But if you stop mid-paragraph, mid-sentence, uh, it's very easy to pick up and get that flow going again the next day. So there are a couple of little tips that I found have really helped me. And because I don't have a plot, um, I don't review anything that I've done until I get to the very end of my first draft. The third um, tip for aspiring writers is do your research retrospectively. Write your manuscript. Put all your time and effort into getting your story down and writing it. What I do is, if I don't know something, if it's a, a fact or a figure or how to fly a helicopter or how to perform emergency surgery or what type of weapon someone is going to use or whatever, I, I just put in a, a filler or I make it up and I just write a little note to myself in bold. I write the word check in brackets and then I carry on writing my story. Um, when I get to the end and I do my first edit and I go through the manuscript from start to finish, I may or may not still need that piece of information. If I do, then I go about finding it. And because it's by nature a very specific piece of information that I need to fit in the story, 
what I do is I don't go online looking for facts and figures and how to do this or how to do that. I do go online looking for people. So what I try and do is find an expert in the area uh, that I'm writing about and I ask that expert uh, a question or two just enough to be able to get the right information for that part of the story. If I'm lucky, they'll also agree to my request to read that section when I get to a more advanced draft. So like I said at the start, just do it just right. And one of the best and easiest and worst ways to avoid writing is to immerse yourself in research before you start writing a particular section. It's a, it's a good trap to, to avoid. I hope that's been helpful. Uh, now I'm going to narrate the first chapter of Blood Trail. Chapter 1. South Africa. In the time of COVID-19. A lion roared outside. The deep longing call came from the pit of its belly and made the glass pane of her bedroom window vibrate. Normally she loved that sound and being that close, she might once have found it a bit scary. Now, Captain Sunny Van Rensburg felt nothing, just empty. As she did up the buttons of her blue uniform shirt, she felt detached, as if she was dressing one of her three children. Not that she'd done that for many years. Her youngest, Tommy, her lark, Lamity, was turning 13 in a month and wouldn't be too many years before her late lamb didn't need her at all. Normally she would wear plain clothes to work, but her washing basket was overflowing. Sunny started to cry and didn't bother even trying to wipe away the tears as she buckled her belt and adjusted the holster holding her Z88 pistol on her hip. She went through to the kitchen. The house was still chilly in the morning, although this winter, which had seemed like it would never end, was slowly, begrudgingly giving way to the warmer weather, which would bring rain and fresh growth. She put the empty bottle of Niederberg Sauvignon Blanc from the night before in the bin and rinsed her glass. She did not need more rolled eyeballs from her two sons. The lion called again, searching for his brother or warning others to stay away. Increasingly, lions were crossing the Sabi River from the Kruger National Park into the adjoining Hippo Rock Private Nature Reserve, a housing development in the bush where Sunny lived. Many of the houses in Hippo Rock were holiday homes, and with their occupants stuck in Hauteng or the Cape, or the foreign owners overseas because of travel bans, the estate had been far quieter than normal during the pandemic. The animals were literally taking over. There was never a good time for a pandemic, Sunny mused as she made herself a cup of rooibos tea and a single slice of toast, hoping it would settle her stomach. The wine had been flowing last night, when she'd been at the home of her friend Samantha Carandes. Even though sales and transport of alcohol had been banned during South Africa's draconian lockdown, Samantha had not been miserly, and the three of them, Samantha, Sunny, and their friend Elizabeth Usazen, had come close to finishing six bottles between them, including the half bottle Sunny had taken home and finished herself alone. I've got a well-stocked cellar, darling, Samantha had said more than once, but Sunny, an experienced police detective, had also noticed the briefest look that passed between the two other women. If Samantha had a secret source of booze, then she was surely not the only one in South Africa. Sunny had bigger crimes to worry about. Mum, Tommy said behind her, breaking into her thoughts. She didn't look over her shoulder. Yes, my boy, at least turn the light on. It's not even 6am, go back to bed. He might talk to her like a surly teenager, but she still thought of him as her little boy. Lion woke me. He went past her to the fridge, took out the milk and swigged from the bottle. Normally, she would have told him not to be so rude, but there was no normal anymore. He was getting taller by the day, looking more and more like his father, 
and the resemblance would only grow as he filled out. Nature was conspiring to prolong her grief forever. She looked out the window, not wanting him to see her tears, but not caring if he did. Christo will help you with your homeschooling today. Do as he says, hey? A couple of sullen, silent seconds. All right, Mum. Her middle child, six years older than Tommy, happened to be at home with them. Christo was studying zoology and botany at Fritz University and had been doing a practical with the Kruger Park's veterinarians when the government announced the country was shutting down because of the virus. As the veterinarian's work was an essential service, Christo was able to stay in the park or move to and from their house in Hippo Rocket Well. He had slept at home last night. Sonny's eldest, Alana, was studying medicine at Stellenbosch University and had decided to stay in Cape Town for the lockdown. Interprovincial travel had only recently reopened, throwing a slender thread rather than a lifeline to the tourism operators, but Alana was prepping for exams. They'd had a fight last night, Sonny and Tommy, over him spending too much time on the computer. She'd never said so to his face, nor to her husband, Tom Senior, that she thought the boy was too English, spoiled by his British father, who had no other children of his own before meeting Sonny. Alana and Christo, Christo were by her first husband, an Afrikaans detective like her. She felt guilty now that she had ever questioned Tom's loving parenting, even silently. Are you crying? She looked at the kitchen window and saw now that he had been watching her reflection. She wiped her eyes for the first time. Tommy put a hand on her shoulder. I miss him too, Mum. Sonny covered Tommy's hand and gave it a squeeze. I know you do, my boy. He forced a smile. I just saw on Facebook that there's a leopard with a kill at the golf club. Animals are taking over the place, she said. Please will you try and get a picture for me on your way to work, Mum? Sure. Sonny's latest posting in the South African Police Service was as the head of the Stock Theft and Endangered Species Unit, which is based at the Majok, the Mission Area Joint Operations Centre, the headquarters for anti-poaching in Kruger, alongside Skikuza Airport. Sunny and her f- small force of Stess detectives were responsible for crime scene investigation and prosecutions arising from rhino and other poaching incidents. From Hippo Rocket was a 15-kilometre drive to the Majok through the Paul Kruger entry gate across the river. She liked to get an early start on the day, especially as work was one of the few places where she could busy herself enough not to think too much about Tom. Her daily shortcut through the Skakuza Staff Village took her past the golf club so she could easily divert there to look quickly for Tommy's leopard. The Skakuza Golf Course, which was open to big game all the time, was being overrun by elephants and other herbivores, feasting on the greens now that no one was playing. The predators, too, were arriving in numbers. Despite a lull in rhino poaching at the start of the lockdowns, crime had been returning with the progressive reopening of the country. Poverty was a perennial problem in the communities that bordered Kruger, but with the collapse of the tourism industry due to worldwide shutdowns, many more people than usual were unemployed, adding to the police's problems. Sonny kissed Tommy. Say goodbye to your brother for me and tell him I love him. I will do, Mum. Tommy opened the laptop sitting on the kitchen counter. She held up a finger to him and do your schoolwork today. No computer games. He turned the laptop around to show her the screen, tapping the volume key as he did so. No games, Mum. The stay-home safari morning drives just started. A young white woman with short, dark hair swiveled in the seat of her open-top Land Rover game viewer and smiled at the camera while an older African man sat on the tracker seat attached to the front left-hand fender, watching the bush and the reddening sky. Good morning from sunny, cool South Africa, and welcome to Stay Home Safari.
wherever you're logging in from in the world. I'm your ranger and field guide, Mia Greenaway, coming to you from Lion Plains Private Game Reserve, outside the world-famous Sabi Sand Game Reserve. And behind me is my very talented and knowledgeable trekker, Bongani Ngobeni. Behind the camera today is our Jill of all trades, Sarah Skold, all the way from Norway, though stuck here in South Africa these days. Now, let's go find some lines. Sunny shook her head and manufactured a smile for Tommy. Shame. You live in a nature reserve with lions calling and you have to go online to watch them. He grinned, and he looked so much like his father that she had to wipe her eyes again. Mum? She picked up her car keys out of the carved wooden bowl on the bench top. Yes, it's okay to cry. She drew a breath and ruffled his hair. It wasn't like she was the only one who'd experienced loss during the pandemic. People had died. Samantha's husband John had committed suicide because his tourism business had collapsed due to coronavirus. Elizabeth's husband, Pete, had left her for his secretary and escaped with the woman to Dubai, unable to face the prospect of not seeing his mistress during lockdown. I know. As soon as she opened the front door, the chill hit her hard. The lion was quiet now, but she knew he, and probably the rest of his pride, was close. She didn't care. She went to her Toyota Fortuna, clicked the alarm remote, got in and started the engine. As she drove off, she realised she hadn't even bothered to check for the line. Ordinarily, she would have had her powerful torch scouring the surrounds for danger first. Sunny didn't care anymore. Thanks, Tony. I had a fabulous conversation with Tony back in episode 293 of the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast, and he spoke then about how he likes to write on location. So it's interesting how with this book, he really had to try something new. And I like his tip about research being a trap. Sometimes you absolutely need to research parts of your novel before you start, especially for historical fiction. But I see so many writers get bogged down in the research and then they never actually start writing. So if that sounds like you, stop it. Put down the research right now and start writing. In fact, why not start writing in one of our courses at the Australian Writers' Centre? As Tony said, it's how he wished he'd started. Creative Writing Stage 1 is the perfect place to either start writing or get you out of a writing slump or kickstart your writing juices, just like published author Sarah Bailey. Here's Sarah's story. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Let's hear from Sarah Bailey. My name's Sarah Bailey. Um, I've got a debut novel through Alan and Umlin out at the moment. It's called The Dark Lake. It's a crime thriller. I was working in advertising at the time and I was working at a great company and had a really sort of good career, but I just had this burning desire to write all the time. I'd heard really good things about the Australian Writer Centre's course. Um, the reviews were always really positive and people always sort of providing really good feedback on social media. So um, I just thought that was a really good place for me to start. I found Nicole Hayes, the tutor that I had in the course that I did through the Australian Writer Centre, really inspiring. Um, really down-to-earth um, teaching style, but just a really great way of um, pulling together some of the writing skills that she's picked up over the years. She had such a passion for narrative and structure um, and being a published author, she had some, some really practical um, advice and knowledge to share as well. 
The process for me was just setting my own deadlines, which was something that was covered off in the Australian Writer Centre's course as well. Went, this is how many words I'd like to have by these different points along the year. And then I um, just worked towards getting the words down. And then I sort of um, approached agents, and then the agents helped me approach publishers. In the end, when Alan and Unwin decided to publish the novel, and um, that was all confirmed, it was, it was amazing. It was just such an amazing um, experience to go through, and I felt really fortunate. Um, but also really proud because it had obviously been you know, a really hard, um, hard sort of journey to get there. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered that writing was something that was really, really important to me. And then of course, you know, through meeting the people and the tutor that I had, I also picked up a lot of really invaluable skills as well. I think it really just set me off on the right path. Um, and then since then, obviously, so much has happened in my world in terms of writing that I really do see it as the first step um, that, I, that I took along that path. It's amazing. I've, I feel very, very fortunate to be in the position where that's that's my current life. So I think that was a, that was hugely important um, in terms of getting getting started. Definitely, anyone who's interested in writing and sort of taking a, a, a more serious step toward that as a career or even just a, a more specific hobby, I think the Australian Writer Centre's courses are really worthwhile. I think it's just it's always nice to be um, in an environment where people are passionate about what you're passionate about. Um, and I think that the, um, the skills and the information that you get from, from courses like that just, just help you sort of really focus. For me, the creative writing course was, was a great starting point. I think it just made me um, rediscover my love for writing at a basic level all over again. Um, so I think that I've definitely spoken to other friends and have suggested that they give it a shot. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creativewriting. Thanks for listening to this special episode of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Connect with us on social media at writerscentreau, on Twitter and Instagram, and join our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Both Alison and I will be back to our regular programming in your next episode. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.